netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the last FX Podcast of 2023. I'm John Montgomery. With the end of the year comes a time to reflect on the last 12 months. And in that vein, we look back with our podcast today at Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Our guest is production VFX supervisor Alex Woodka. The discussion between Mike and Alex generally focuses on two big action sequences from the film, the car chase in Rome, as well as the fight on and on top of the train. So let's go ahead and cross to them now as they cover those sequences, as well as talk about other details from the film. So Alex, thanks so much for joining us. I, I watched the film again um, last night, and uh, and it was just as good. I think well, it must have been my third time as it was the first. Okay, fantastic. In fact, I got to see a preview of it at a, an event uh, way before the uh, film came out. Um, they were basically mm. obviously talking about the stunts. Um, and that's great. But for me, there's a huge visual language of stuff that clearly is visual effects that allows that story to be told. And I think is in kind of the spirit of Mission Impossible anyway. In other words, Mission Impossible itself seems to lend itself to uh, – the clever tricks of visual effects, but um, like, how did you approach the film, generally speaking? Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I got involved, you know, pretty early on in the process around 2019. Uh, so Chris Macquarie at the time was was doing sort of a, a grand tour of the world. You know, he was kind of he was working his way around the globe with his producer uh, Jake Jake Myers. And they were sort of just looking for locations, you know, before they'd even gotten around to any sort of script writing or anything like that. They were really just looking for interesting places. Um, so, you know, our, our initial conversations kind of revolved around that largely. Um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about some of the things I'd done in the past and how the geography had impacted, you know, the action. And that was a that was a sort of a, a, a sort of a concept that's carried all the way through. Uh, the production of the movie. Um, so, you know, we, we talked a lot about how geography influences action and and how it kind of dictates interesting ways that you can let action play out. And then sort of, you know, the conversation then evolved around to, you know, shooting methodologies and interesting ways that you could shoot sequences. Um, you know, so, so our sort of initial conversations were really about that. Uh, they're about the sort of the, you know the technical side of things um, and things that we've done in the past. And of course, you've been at ILM for um, a few years now, right? Like uh, more than a few. Years. But prior to that, you were at DNEG, right. right? And you you worked on at least uh, I'm aware of at least two yeah. Bond films, right? And the Bond films seem to is that kind of what yeah. you're referencing in terms of like uh, location? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you know we'd. Um, Previously, when I was at DNEG, I worked on Quantum of Solace. Um, we did a big aerial sequence in that, you know, so we, we talked quite a lot about that. You know, it was something that came up in in some of the work that I was presenting to Chris um, and Jake, you know, uh, sort of by way of a calling card. And, you know, we, we talked a lot about that and we sort of referenced, you know, the, the practical, uh, you know, side of filmmaking um, we talked about Dan Bradley, who we we sort of uh, who's a second unit director. We both had some experience with in the past, and the ways that he approached sequences and and action. Um, so yeah, I think the the Bond experience is is something that you know that there's a lot of stuff in common. 
uh, with the way that those films are made historically. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, you know, both and of them are kind of very much. I was going to say, both of them are like these uh, yeah, landmark it, kind of franchises that have both action with a kind of dry sense of humor, but also need to stay grounded visually and not look cartoonish. They need to look like uh, suspensefully dramatic, albeit yeah. spectacularly, um, you know, wild. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and it's kind of pretty much a common piece of DNA, I think, through through both the franchises. You know, it's a love for, uh, you know, exotic locations, place, taking audiences to places that it might not have been to before. Uh, and, you know, sort of trying to really trying to immerse the audience in the action. Um, and I guess kind of thematically as well, you know, you're you're very much with a a hero, you know, you're you're sort of experiencing through things through the eyes of that of that hero. So that's pretty much, you know, where Chris wanted to go with um with this film. I was wondering if we could just rather than talk about everything that ILM did, I'd like to zero in if we could on like two sequences and just compare and contrast them to get a bit more uh, in depth. And I thought we'd talk about uh the Rome car chase and the train mm. sequence. And the reason yeah. I sort of picked those two is clearly both have visual effects, clearly both have um, location work. I know that there was this great valley that you guys found for the train. But having said that, the train is more, um, how can I put this, like, well, it feels like you must have had to solve that with more visual effects, uh, environmental work and uh, and stuff than the car chase. And I was just wondering if that's true. That's if I was just guessing at how you did it, because, I mean, they both visually work. Um, but there's two different sort of approaches there, right? Because in the car chase, yeah. in some sense, you could have done it all in camera if it had been mm -hmm. given a year and, <laughs> and an infinite number of Fiat uh, 500s. Right. So so just discuss the um, start yeah. of the car chase, yeah. So, yeah, so we shot, you know, we shot sort of principally in Rome. That was, uh, that was the, the whole location for that, for that sequence. Um, and it was it was largely getting things in camera um you know we we had we, we interestingly we were, we were kind of shooting it on on the tail end of covid uh you know so there was there was still quite a bit of lockdown happening um so we kind of had almost kind of the opposite problem that you usually have with filming these sequences whereby the streets were largely deserted um, you know, so sort of locking things down wasn't really a problem. But what it did mean was that the usual hustle and bustle of a city kind of was slightly absent. Um, so a lot of a lot of what we're doing in that sequence was was really just transplanting, uh, you know, that hustle and bustle back into the sequence, you know, by way of uh, adding in CG vehicles here and there, putting in parked cars as well. Uh, on some streets, you know, so that that was a kind of a part of what we did, but probably the the largest thing that we had to do in there was um, a sequence involving the Spanish Steps, which is where the Fiat sort of finds itself hurtling down, you know, these these beautiful ornamental steps, and then is closely followed by, uh, you know, Paris, who's driving this big kind of Humvee military vehicle. And obviously, with the actual through Spanish the steps, steps rather you know, than down the steps. Yeah, <laughs> <There's> through, <laughs> first time down the steps, second time through the steps. Yeah, correct. Um, 
the actual Spanish steps in in Rome are heavily protected and and maintained. So you can you can't you're not even allowed to sit down on the steps, you know, as a, as a tourist. You know, there's a little carabinieri down at the bottom that blows a whistle every time someone just sits down. So the the concept of sending cars down it was obviously, you know, a no go right from the beginning. So you know that was that was probably the biggest uh, sort of issue that we had with that sequence. And and the way that we ended up solving it was uh, we ended up building rebuilding the Spanish steps on the back lot in two parts. You know, the upper part and the the lower part. And doing some digital stitches between the two to bring the action together, and then we would extend that with uh, a lot of photogrammetry that we shot on location uh, in Rome. Um, so that's kind of one half of that puzzle. But then the second half was that you know it's vehicular uh, action. It's kind of it's quite dangerous, and McHugh wanted to really have this sense that you know there's lots of people in the way. There's pedestrians on the steps. Um, and you know we wanted to kind of have this action happen down the steps we're sending cars down the steps um but obviously there's there's a lot of uh, sort of pedestrians that would be in in real mortal danger if we shot that for real so you know what we did there is we sent we we had these steps they were reinforced with steel by the by the art department we sent our elect fully electrified fiat 500 down the steps we sent the hummer down the steps and then we did a whole once we'd shot those passes, we uh effectively match moved them, used the match moves to drive some motion control and, and shot some crowd elements, uh, which we could sort of you know place in the path of the cars. And then deep in the background would be would be digi crowds. So those so let's say you've got the car coming down, and obviously it's going to have a certain amount of randomness to it. So I understand why you'd want to keep the camera pretty flexible. You've done the motion yeah. uh, solution from that, but are you now filming mm-hmm. those actors on the steps or are you shooting them on green screen? Or like how are you, once you've got that motion path to replicate, how are you actually doing that? Yeah. So what we're what we're doing is we're we're taking that solved camera and we're we're taking some of the some of the complexity out of the camera moves. We're taking a lot of the the Z travel and we're baking it down into a simplified version of that, which is more about rotations and parallax and perspective shifts and then we're building we had art department build a series of rostrums and proxy surfaces which we could place our crowds on um so they're doing the right things the perspective is shifting in the correct way but obviously we're then adding in the z translation of the camera as a sort of little post effect to bed them into the geometry of the steps how forgiving is the lighting on that? Did you have to get the lighting right? Or in those action sequences, is it fairly forgiving that you're sort of uh it's I mean it's fairly yeah, it's fairly flexible. I mean, we're making sure that the sun's in the right position. Um, but you know, what we were sort of relatively fortunate in that when we actually shot, you know, we when we shot the this on the back lot, the car sequence, it was fairly sort of flat lighting, you know, so we were having to artificially kind of bring in a bit of sun. Uh, you know, like a big kind of airy sun just behind it, just to lift it. But um, you know, it's as long as the sun is in the right sort of location and you're getting the the key in the right place, it's pretty forgiving. So in that sequence and in ones around it, there is uh, some terrific cinematography mm. that seems to have our heroes right in the cars without doors on or whatever, and we're we're doing four wheel drifts around yeah. corners and stuff. 
I'm a guessing that there must have been a heck of a safety rig removal or something. Like, I mean, I just know how. Yeah, I'm sure they're good at drivers, but that was some serious driving. Yeah, I mean, Tom does all his own driving. So whenever you see him at the wheel, that's him driving for real, um, and often actually one-handed because he's handcuffed to Haley throughout the sequence. So he does all his own driving. There's obviously roll cages and things like that in all, all of the vehicles uh, just for safety. But the main the main one there was when Haley is driving and she's driving the BMW. Then yeah, we kind of had a pod driven solution. So there'd be a pod on the back of the BMW with um, Wade Eastwood, who's our stunt uh, supervisor. He would be driving from the back. Obviously, that's a lot of cleanup. Um, so in most instances, uh, we'd be just creating a digital version of the BMW, which we'd just effectively drop over the top um, of that to allow us to do all the cleanup in the back. And so one of those uh, shots, which is obviously super dramatic, is the Fiat actually tumbling, which of course ends up with them reversing their seating order miraculously, which is a great gag. But like... What was in camera? What was digital effects? Was there digi doubles? Like, I mean, I can't imagine you're throwing Haley around upside down in a inside a Fiat. No, well, I mean, it's interesting because we there's it's kind of we split the shots into uh, sort of exterior and interior. Um, for the interior shots, we we built a slightly oversized Fiat buck that was on a sort of a steel uh, sort of rig, steel kind of uh, wheels that we could then actually kind of throw down the steps and they'd be inside and it was all softs. That sort of meant recreating the interior of the Fiat digitally. So we made sure that it was all painted with the right colours so we get the right bounce onto them. But the interior is then recreated. But they're being kind of thrown down inside this kind of, this soft version of the Fiat interior. So we're kind of getting a lot of that action for real. Um, For the exterior shots, uh, you know, there's I think there's one shot where we have some digi doubles being thrown around inside, but um, otherwise it's just clever cuts. Um, we're actually kind of putting them in a car, starting either starting the move or ending the move, and then the what happens in between is is all done through cuts. I'm glad you brought that up because I was watching a behind the scenes thing and it was pointing out that in some of those car sequences, there were like, you know, one, two frame dissolves to get between one take and another. And clearly the editing here was, uh, you know, top shelf. Like it was just so well edited, um, which, you know, makes, I guess, VFX's job that much easier. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Eddie Hamilton's the, uh, the editor on the movie and, and it's a huge collaboration. You know, he's a very collaborative guy. So, you know, we're during post we're based up in the cutting room with with eddie and his team and it's it's a very close relationship uh you know to to make sure that all that happens correctly so can we contrast that where you've got landmarks that the audience knows really well and uh, a city that is very uh well understood to the train sequence where i don't think anyone would have probably known mm-hmm. that train apart from a few austrians <laughs> um how much was that a similar approach or how much was it a different approach when you were addressing the train sequence? It was, it was similar in some respects, but, you know, in others kind of wildly different. Uh, um, 
it was the the train sequence because because we ended up shooting that across probably about three years wow. uh, and so many different locations um you know it ended up we ended up using you know throwing the book at it it's you know we we started originally in norway um where the production hired a stretch of track and we had art department create some some carriages for us they were pulled by a diesel shunter uh and a lot of that was you know we got all of our beauty big beauty shots there we established the look of the sequence there we also had um tom and isai Ethan and Gabriel fighting on the roof of the train. Um, so they were doing that for real. They were just on wires, uh, you know, safety rigs. And then, you know, a lot of our work there was just kind of cleaning up the carriages, extending the carriages, putting in a, a CG locomotive at the front of it all. Um, and then adding a little bit of steam into the into the top of it. So, you know, at the same time, we're shooting, you know, we, we built an array. Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, like in Norway, I thought that was in Austria, but in Norway, that there was no locomotive. I thought there actually was a real train that you guys had use of. Was it just the train tracks? Was it? Yeah. So when, whenever we're pulling uh, the 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 art department carriages, that was a diesel shunter. Um, okay. Special effects did build a steam a working locomotive, and you do see that in some of the shots. Okay. Um, but none, not really any of the shots when they're fighting on the roof of the train. We had it in, in practice for some of the practical beauty shots uh, that was available. Um, you know, so at the same time, we we rigged, rigged onto the side of it uh, an array of cameras. So we're shooting our plates we were going to use for our carriage interiors. The carriage interiors were then, uh, you know, we shot those on stage. Uh, we started off at Leavesden and then ended up at Longcross, um, you know, doing a whole bunch of pickups and things like that. And so whenever you're interior, you're on a stage and we're playing back our array footage of the Norwegian landscape, which is doubling as the Alps uh, into the background of the shots. Um, and then we we decided that we wanted to do some additional photography of uh you know the roof fight uh, of shots of haley climbing on the outside of the train um to get to the front so we then picked it up and we went to north yorkshire we found a stretch of track there uh, that would allow us to take our art department carriages and run them up and down the track um and that involved quite a bit of augmentation of the background because obviously, you know, the background was a fairly good match for Norway, but not an exact match. And it was time of year was different. So all these things. So, you know, that was, there was, ILM did quite a bit of extensive work in terms of patching the background to make it look like the Alps and then putting DMPs in the background for, for mountains. Um, yeah. And then there was this kind of a third flavor, which, you know, we, we did sort of carriage work, just on the back lot, uh, you know, where we put our carriages up on bellows, rigs, uh, green screen behind them, and then, you know, just shot some sort of tight, closer action on the back lot. And that was all pretty much, you know, a lot of those moves are sort of fairly wild. And those ended up being a mixture of stitches of array material plus, you know, fully CG backgrounds. Yeah, that's, uh, it's a sort of, essential part of the exercise but one that's not often 
discuss, which is just to make that all look like it's happening, not just on the same location, but in the same day, which, you know, like if it, yeah. if it was any reason the quality of the light even changed, it would be incongruous to an audience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we, we were sort of fortunate in that when we established the sequence, you know, the, the weather in Norway was sort of fairly changeable. Um, so a lot of just within in the course of a day, you know, you go from bright sun into sort of fairly overcast. So there's, you know, you, 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 we're sort of establishing that look and you, you get away with a fair amount. But, yeah, it's kind of effectively it's just that was one of the biggest challenges is, is, is pulling it all together into a cohesive sequence visually. And then what about the end of that sequence? Right. So so then we end up with, you know, the locomotive going over the edge of, uh, you know, once the bridge is demolished, there's a locomotive that goes over the edge. And that was achieved with special effects with their, you know, fully constructed steam locomotive. We found a quarry in the north of England built some track at the top of it, had a whole series of camera positions and actually sent the locomotive over the edge uh, into the quarry. And there was some some really sort of clever engineering, not just for the locomotive, but actually for some of the camera release systems because they were onboard cameras that McHugh wanted that kind of travelled over the edge with the train and, and special effects built kind of bomb release, explosive bolt sort of solutions to jettison the cameras just before the moment of impact so that we could retrieve the retrieve the cards so there's a lot of fun uh, to be had there i guess it's a really good idea to have a camera go over a cliff for what the audience is going to see only if the audience gets to see it because the cameras aren't destroyed hadn't even occurred to me that you'd uh, have to do that precisely it's the essential part of that equation um Um, there must have been a bunch of studio work as well right i mean as that carriage yeah, is playing absolutely. out. absolutely. So, you know, there's, right, so there's that. And then, you know, once that whole event has happened, then we kind of get into this jackknife, inchworming uh, sequence of where the carriages are going over one by one. And, and that was all done using gimbals, you know, these giant gimbals, which could hold a full carriage and tip it uh, 30 degrees on either end. Uh, and each of those carriages would be dressed by art department and we'd get all of that physics kind of built in of them sliding down the carriages and, you know, climbing their way up. So that was that was all done with gimbal work. Um, and then the, the very final carriage is one that can go to 90 degrees. And that's kind of how we, we ended up with that sort of vertical playground. There's a sort of a weightless part of that at one stage when the carriages kind of lurch and fall. I'm guessing that's wire work and a bunch of rig removal right. or? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was effectively all wire work. Um, and then a whole bunch of CG objects inside of the carriage, uh, which were all sort of very carefully choreographed to give that sense of weightlessness and then just to come crashing back down again. You must have been really pleased with that sequence because it seems to work so well on screen. And also it works so well, you know it works well because it's sustained yeah. for quite a lot of time. Like the editors, if it wasn't working, the editors would have cut out of it at some point, right? But it goes on. Screen time doesn't feel like a long time, yeah. but it is a lot of screen time. It is. And it, it's interesting because it's, I mean, it's another testament to Eddie Hamilton and his and his editing chops. But, you know, that that sequence initially, we shot so much material for that. 
you know, we we spent quite a lot of time in in the early stages of the cut. You know, that sequence lasted for probably three times as long as it it is in the current movie. But you know, sort of quite late in late in the day, you know, when they're trying to take some of the air out of the the cut, you know that that kind of ended up getting compressed all the way down um, to just its essential components. And it's, I think that's what gives us its kind of breathless quality. In that editing process, uh, are you, is that sort of like an edit? Um, I guess I'm trying to work out where you are in terms of delivering finished shots. Like, was it the shot, I guess the the cutting ratio, was it like pretty tight or in fact you were delivering quite a lot of finished shots, many of which may end up on a uh, an extended cut someday, but we won't ever see otherwise. Yeah. No, I mean, we, I think our final tally uh, for finals was about 3,700 shots, you know. Um, so, you know, we, we're producing uh, quite a lot of material. Uh, that's then you know some of it sort of disappears other stuff stays in but it's yeah it's quite a high ratio yeah yeah just on that score maybe we could just quickly discuss some of the uh technical aspects of the uh production so uh what were your deliverables on this like was it i presume it was like a 4k finish is that right or that's correct yeah so 4k finish all the way through and given that it's such a prestigious um, uh, sort of property, I'm guessing this is all HDR and stuff. Do you do you take much consideration of those things, or is it that you're just working in open EXRs anyway, so it's not such a big deal for you? Yeah, I mean, we're we're sort of we're open EXR all the way through. So you know, we're whenever we're mastering and and looking at things, we're we're always looking at it at that sort of resolution and that sort of bit depth. Uh, all the way through to the DI, you know, we spend an awful lot of time in the DI. Also, kind of looking at you know the HDR mix of things as well, which is always a, a bit of an eye opener. Just mastering for for HDR is is an interesting process in itself. So it was shot primarily uh, on the Arri, right? Like I think Arri uh, Alexa was its kind of like was that the main camera, but there must have been a lot of different no. cameras. No, no, not. No, no, we were Sony Venice. Oh, okay. Well, I guess my same question yeah, applies so though. Sony Venice and you must have mm. been mixing in like because there might there must have been a bunch of different camera formats to mix in because like some of those Rome stuff yeah. we were talking about had to be uh, different types of uh, cameras than a, a Venice strapped to a car, I presume. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, you know, Venice was was a sort of primary camera. Uh, system but then you know there were sort of variations of that uh we went rialto mode quite a bit which is where you can just effectively take uh the you know the sensor off on the front just the sensor in the lens so that kind of makes it a lightweight solution with an umbilical that was used a lot for the action sequences um for the car chases and hard mounts in general we would be z cam um because you know they're sort of relatively inexpensive but they've got a, a very nice picture quality and something that fraser tag at our dp sort of embraced and that allowed us to you know they're tiny cameras uh that allows us to kind of get them into into quite sort of tight positions so for car rigs it's you know they were they were the tool of choice i should know this but was it anamorphic 
were you shooting? We yeah, so we we are primarily anamorphic, but we yeah. shot spherical. Uh, you know, on like, hey, yeah, and yeah, and that must have introduced its own sort of. Uh, I mean, I, I just find some of the less how can I put this less glorified aspects of the filmmaking so essential for it working. So fitting in that um, yeah. anamorphic stuff with the non-anamorphic stuff, the different lenses, the different uh, color science and stuff, and making that all, as mm. I say, look like it's all shot as one, doesn't get a lot of credit, but it's actually a really important part of the process. Oh, it's a it's a massive part of the process. Yeah, so it's it's kind of up up front. You know, we would do, we would work with our uh, the, our sort of vendor for for scans and, and dailies and things like that. That was Delane Lee, so Warner Brothers Delane. Um, and you know, kudos to the team there. Uh, you know, we we spent an awful amount of lot of time just developing our uh, uh, technical specifications in terms of a common container uh, for everything, and making sure that you know the for the vendor. And we ended up with about thirteen different vendors. They had a they had a sort of a pretty turnkey solution in terms of deliverables and the scans they were receiving and what formats they were getting and having a, having a Bible that sort of tied all that together was an essential part of the process. I said, I was going to focus mainly on uh, Rome and the train sequence, but I think you guys also worked on the sub, right? Hmm. Yeah. And that, that's a really interesting one because it's the rest of the movie is so based in photography. You know, there's, there's always, we, we went to great, pains to make sure there was always some sort of photographic element at the core of the image you know for every single shot that you can hang everything else off of so there's always some sort of photographic truth but with with the sub you know there's there's very there was very little kind of reference points for us you know uh, we we'd like to sort of you know the the audience kind of knows what a car racing around a city looks like they know what a train coursing through the countryside looks like there's so many reference points for that, um, you know, that you can satisfy. But for the submarine, it was, you know, we kept drawing blanks. You know, we, we were trying to find, we were sitting with, uh, you know, Chris Macquarie and, and just trying to figure out, you know, what what's the audience's frame of reference going to be for this? And there just isn't one. And, the, and actually kind of what we thought in the end was most people, when they think about that, they're thinking of the hunt for Red October or, you know, Crimson Tide, you know, these these are the touchstones for submarines. So our decision there was, well, let's just kind of lean into that visual language, that cinematic language. So, you know, we we originally, our, our idea was that we were going to shoot that as, as a, a large miniature, you know, like we were going to build a 12-foot miniature and shoot it very much in the style of, you know, ILM, Hunt for Red October, uh, you know, finding a big stage, filling it up with mineral smoke and getting a big model mover and, and pulling it through because, you know, that would give us an authentic action movie submarine sequence uh, aesthetically. Obviously, because of the way that things turned out in the script, it became impractical because there's a lot of destruction. There's all sorts of things that would make that sort of economically unviable. So we went with a digital version of that, but we we still try to do it in the same way. You know, we built these kind of volumes of, uh, you know, these dense volumes, uh, volumetrics that we would pull our digital submarine through to kind of get the depth and the fall off 
the way that light works, you know, through the volumes was all pretty much based on creating a digital version of a model miniature shoot. I mean, what you're describing here is classic filmmaking because what you're doing is producing imagery that I can relate to and understand as an audience member. Though, of course, if anyone's ever done the actual diving or whatever, it'd be pitch black, right? Like you wouldn't see a bloody thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, that's it. Well, that's exactly it. And we, we had a we had an advisor, uh, Captain Ratliff, who's a ex-commander of a nuclear, you know, US nuclear sub. He was the show's advisor on this. And, and that was exactly it. He was saying, listen, if you went outside of that submarine and you got 10 meters away from it, you'd you'd be in pitch darkness. You'd see nothing especially under the Arctic ice cap, you know, the Bering Sea, you'd see nothing. There'd be nothing there. So it's kind of, you know, you've, you've got to stretch reality out to accommodate a vision. Um, you know, so we're, we're breaking a lot of rules. And our first tests were, you know, we, we thought, oh, well, let's go into this, you know, absolute, let's try some some things out where we're, we're absolutely obeying the laws of physics and let's be slaves to physics, you know, because maybe that's the way you get to the truth of it. And 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 really, you get nothing. It's just a black frame, uh, and that's not particularly exciting. Yeah, this is, I guess, leans into my how I, I had personally, obviously, uh, upset when visual effects are denigrated by people saying, "Oh no, it was all done in camera, and it was all done for real." And I'm like, I hate to break it to people, yeah. but Tom isn't actually a secret agent. They're not actually killing each other, <laughs> and none of it's real, right? Um, so, right. as an audience member, especially for a film like this. Yeah, you need to, because I think this is true of all three of the sequences we've discussed. You and, of course, the editors have done such a marvellous job in the cinematographer in not losing the audience. And I find like in not particularly great action sequences of other films, you can just kind of go, okay, I don't know what's going on now, but at some point it'll all be over and we can get back to the plot. You know, And I think that's the worst right. part about these type of films where you feel like I'm now in a, a bit and when the bit's over, we can get back to the interesting stuff. But we, you know, obviously it's a mandatory to have the bit. Um, in these three sequences, it felt like the story was still continuing and we were still engaged, both kind of emotionally and and through the action sequences. But that only happens if the blocking, the framing, and all of the kind of editing allows the audience to understand what the heck's going on, which may mean lighting up a sub right. underwater if that's what it takes. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Chris Chris's background is he's a he's a you know he's a storyteller. Uh, you know, he cut his teeth with the usual suspects. Um, so everything that we do is all about storytelling. Um, and you know, there's everything that's kind of not related to storytelling. Anything involved in the frame that doesn't tell a story is jettisoned very early on. So, you know, that that's his whole MO. And it's just there's so many different ways of telling a story. Um, and that's kind of what he's all about. Well, Alex, um, I'm pretty sure we're gonna see some more of that sub in part two. Um, I can't, I'm not, I'm not fishing for uh spoilers, <laughs> but like I think the story is pretty evident that that we're heading towards that sub. So we uh yeah. we might see some more of it. But like it's been so great talking to you about this, and congratulations to you and the team. As I say because it works at so many levels as just good, solid, I want to go to the cinema to see it, filmmaking. Uh, it's Yeah, it's great. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Thank you. Thanks, guys, for that. As I mentioned, this is our last FX podcast of the year. 
And thank you everyone so much for your support of the podcast, as well as all the other content we have here on FX Guide. Have a great holiday season. And until next time, from Mike Seymour, I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.